Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Edit what? Oh, there. Oh, oh. By the way, yeah. Good morning, everyone, or <laughs> afternoon, or whatever the heck it was. Oh, we never heard the music, so we apologize. It must be paranormal. But I am Ron Kolick, your host, of course. And joining us today is not Anne. Anne is out going see Lone Star or or some kind of country group at some bar. So you got. The next best thing to end, which is uh, you, not the blonde bombshell, I guess we'd say the, the chrome bombshell. Steve yeah. Parsons. Yeah. Bit of a, bit of a second um, choice, isn't it, compared to Anne? You know, the blonde bombshell or me. Sorry, yeah. folks. It's <laughs> me. You know, yeah. I, can only, I can only offer my apologies for being Anne's stunt double. No, I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for coming on. And uh, besides, uh, we're going to go a different route. I mean, we always talk about ghosts and poltergeists and uh, stuff like that. So I thought we'd look at the other side of the paranormal because there are many sides of the paranormal, right, Steve? There are indeed. There are people who believe the world is flat and they put plenty of videos onto YouTube to Yeah, but is that paranormal? That's not paranormal. It's just stupid. Well, it is kind of. It's just stupidity, isn't it? (laughs) Well, you know, one person's paranormal is another person's stupid. Okay. Whatever. You know, so it's it's a very broad church. The paranormal. It, 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 I don't. I don't. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't see how flat flatlanders or flat worlders or whatever they are called are uh, considered paranormal. Because, because well, it, it, they they tend to extend. It's not just that the, the Earth is flat. They they extend their theories to encompass create um, why the Earth is flat. What it means in terms of humanity, consciousness, God, uh, what it means in, in, in terms of alien visitation. Oh, okay, no. So, uh, so it does extend yeah. out from that, from that flat. Yeah, well, I need a drink. Yeah. Uh, that, so anyways. These people are probably the result of drink. Yeah. Anyways, uh, let's forget about the flat worlders, landers, whatever they are, uh, and move on to something that's more interesting and i mean of course there are ufos which is interesting in itself but another aspect is uh cryptozoology and perhaps the most famous cryptoids i would think would be uh the big feet uh the bigfoot uh i mean and we have a, a gentleman joining us now who is uh i consider him an expert he's been studying the subject and uh, uh he is i hope i don't put your name eric eric Altman. Is that correct, Eric? Good evening. Yes, it is. Oh, wow. That's amazing in itself. That's paranormal. <laughs> yeah, it's not often that Ron gets the guest name right. Yeah. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, you know, Steve is, a, of course, a, a, a ghost hunter, a parapsychologist, whatever he wants to call himself this day. And I'm just a guy. And uh, so uh, you 
how did you get involved in, in uh, you know, Bigfoot? Or, or, or do you say, what do you call it? Do you call it Bigfoot? Do you call it Saskatchewan or whatever it is? <laughs> you call it whatever you want. <laughs> okay. um, the, the Native Americans from uh, British Columbia, uh, they called it Sesquas or Sesquah. And a guy named John W. Burns in 1924 actually anglicized the name. Um, and turn it into Sasquatch, which uh, basically means um, forest giant or giant of the forest, forest mm. people. And uh, that's where that, that term comes from. It's not a blanket term that all Native American tribes use. It's something that the, uh, the Chehalish Indians of British Columbia, that's what they called it, the Sasquatch or Sasquatch. And, and uh, he kind of coined the phrase Sasquatch, which people just kind of assume that it's a Native American term. It is, but not for all tribes. Oh, okay. So what do you call yourself? Do you call yourself a cryptozoologist, or, or, or is there another term for what you do? Um, I, I've been called a lot of things. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been called uh, a <laughs> yeah, uh, cryptozoologist, um, a Bigfoot investigator, Bigfoot researcher, a monster hunter, um, paranormal enthusiast. Um, there's a variety of different terms people have used for what I do. Um, there really is no professional or an expertise in the field that I'm in. Um, there are some scientists that are in the field that are studying, but they're experts in their particular scientific field. Uh, until there's an actual body produced or um, one of these cryptids are actually proven to exist, there's really not a profession per se for uh, a cryptozoologist. So, I mean, Steve, that's kind of what, what you're saying about as far as parapsychologists, right? Uh, certainly in terms of ghosts, yeah, we, we don't have any specialist um, titles. We get called uh, labeled ghost hunter, paranormal investigator, ghostbuster. Um, parapsychologist. <laughs> there's another one of, uh, yeah. They're all labels that, that people, I think they're in general acceptance, but, you know, we know what we're talking about. Right. But, you know, he did mention, Eric did mention paranormal, which is interesting because we were just talking about that at the beginning of the show. There's so, so many different branches of the paranormal under that broad term. Well, that's why I've always resented the term paranormal investigator uh, as, as a, a sort of label for what I particularly do. And I'm sure Eric might feel the same way because what we're doing, what Eric's doing is, is a speciality. You know, he's he's developed an area of particular expertise. Uh you know, and and to be labelled along with tree huggers and people who chase ghosts and flat earthers, you know, it, it, it's kind of disingenuous to what we do and the the speciality that we that we develop. You know, the expertise that we do develop, and you can have a you can develop an expertise in understanding the subject that you're studying. Mm-hmm. So, Eric, I mean. Why have you gone the path that you've gone? I mean, you know, when we asked mediums, we asked uh, paranormal investigators, it, it's pretty much the same stories. But why have you, as a uh, cryptozoologist, I'll use that term if you don't mind. No, that's fine. Um, mine goes back to when I was a child. Um, I was really interested growing up as a kid in science fiction movies and horror films and, and really in the paranormal itself. Um, our public library in the town that I grew up in had a, a small, very small paranormal section, but it did have books on ghosts, lake monsters, uh, UFOs, and, and a couple of books on Bigfoot. And uh, I was always fascinated by the subject, but my specialty of studying cryptids 
um, kind of really took off in 1980 when uh, I saw a couple of, um, I guess you call them B uh, category movies, one of them being Legend of Boggy Creek and uh, the other one being Preacher from Black Lake. And, and as I said, I was a fan of sci-fi and horror and those kind of movies, and uh, that kind of set me on the path to start wondering if there were really these cryptids out there, because these two particular movies were supposedly based on real events that took place in the Gulf Coast states of uh, northeastern Texas and uh, Arkansas in the uh, late 1960s, early 1970s. So it was fascinating for me to see this as a kid, having that interest, and then knowing there's a possibility that these monsters may have been real. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it, 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 you've got it. I mean, but, you know, we all have passing interests, but how did you get so deeply involved in it? I mean, is, is there a, a turning point uh, in your life? I mean, that got you interested, but what was the, the, you know, the turning point that made you devote so much time to it? Well, I think the turning point was when I, when I saw those movies, um, it really kind of piqued my interest, and I wanted to find it as much as I could. So I started reading the books and, and trying to educate myself and learn what I could. But I think my turning point came when I was 13, when I found out that there were these actual cryptid sightings, Bigfoot sightings, that were taking place and reported in my hometown, and some as close as a couple of miles from my house. And to me, that was just unbelievable, that, that here I am, a 13-year-old kid taking a garbage bag back to the back alley for the garbage pickup, and there could be one of these Bigfoot creatures running around my neighborhood, and I didn't know it. So I wanted to find out you know, if, if there was anything to it. And I learned from reading some of the newspaper articles and studying some of these reports that there was a gentleman by the name of Stan Gordon, uh, and he, was in my, he lived in my hometown, and uh, Stan was... I guess you call it UFO investigator at the time. That was his main uh, field of uh, study. But as I started reading his reports, I was finding out he was also investigating Bigfoot reports. And so the whole Bigfoot phenomena kind of fell into my lap. Um, you know, it was taken off the, the big screen and dumped right in my lap saying, you know, there may be a Bigfoot and he may be living just a few miles or seen a few miles from where your, your house is. And that, to me, was just enough inspiration and enough motivation to really dig deep into the subject and find out if there was really anything to it or not. Mm-hmm. So, and how long have you been doing this? Just ask my question. Well, I started researching uh, the subject at 10, when I started reading the books and stuff like that. Yeah. Field research, going out into the field and talking to witnesses, I started in 1997. <laughs> so, uh, I, I guess... I mean, I, I know that Steve's uh, interested, in it, and I am too. Is is what is your um, techniques? I mean, uh, you mentioned witnesses, which Steve and I both think that's an important part of investigating. Uh, so, how how do you investigate a, a Bigfoot? I well, mean, we're looking at this from a different point of view. I mean, we're ghost hunters, so that's you know. Sure. So if, if we sound stupid with our questions, that's because we are. <laughs> no, not at all. Actually, Bigfoot research is a lot like paranormal investigations because you have to talk to the witness to find out exactly what their claim is. And then from there, you have to dig into that claim to find out if there's any validity to it. You can't just take someone from their word and, and someone says they saw a Bigfoot or a cryptid. You know, I believe them. You actually got to go out there and find out and, and build a case for what the witness is telling you. And you can either debunk that case or you can find it if it's legitimate 
and continue to investigate that case. And what I do is uh, if I have an, a witness contact me through the normal uh, social media uh, websites, the email, phone calls, word of mouth, uh, face-to-face, um, I, I want to talk to this eyewitness. Um, I would like to talk to them face-to-face because you can learn a lot from their body language and their the way they retell their encounter. They're, they can tell if there's emotion in it, if there's sincerity in it. Um, you can really kind of weed out the, the fabricators from the people who had an actual experience because a lot of these experiences tend to be traumatic and uh, leave a, an impression, a very deep, scarred impression on some of the eyewitnesses. So my first step is to investigate by talking to the witness face-to-face and reading their body language, reading their emotions, reading their uh, the way they retell their encounter and, and trying to get as much detailed information as I can. The second thing I want to do is I want to go to that location as quickly as possible to see if there's any physical evidence left by what they saw or what they experienced. Because if there is, then that to me is definitely a telltale sign that they did see something and, and it might be worth collecting and, and of course, turning over to the property uh, scientific authorities to, to analyze and try to determine what kind of animal left that sign. But... Uh, once I get to that location, I'm looking for footprints. I'm looking for uh, tree breaks that are high up, higher than a typical human's height, maybe seven, eight foot. Uh, I'm looking for large uh, pathways through the forest brush that's trampled down, shows a sign of a large animal. I'm looking for scat, I'm looking for hair, anything that's going to leave a telltale sign that a large animal or the animal they claimed they saw was in the area. And... While I'm doing that, I'm also in the process of looking historically at the area to see if there have been other encounters and claims in that area in the past, uh, looking to see if there's a habitat that would provide a, a good area for that animal to be in, uh, such as water, food stores, uh, cover, and that sort of thing. So I kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together with each case to find out if it's truly leading down the path of that eyewitness really seeing what they claim, or if perhaps they were misidentified or, or it's a fabrication. So it's much like a paranormal investigation where you have to put the pieces of the puzzle together to find out if there's any validity to it. Once you've, um, well, I was going to say, once you've gone through the process of investigation, which does sound remarkably like if you, if you switch the, the big hairy creature for the ghost uh, exactly like what Ron and I the process that Ron and I go through I, I, obviously I don't have um, any, we, we, we do have as I discovered earlier this evening we do have uh, Bigfoot research in the UK and Bigfoot sightings but it's an area well outside um, my area of uh, expertise but I do have an interest in, in lake monsters but I the question is that it's sort of forming in the back of my mind is they're very widespread across the USA. Uh, these these sightings that come in from from multiple different types of environment, from deserts, from high mountain, from woodland. Do you think that you're dealing with perhaps uh, one native species with subspecies, or are you dealing with diverse um, but similar creatures? Good point. That's a really hard question to answer because we don't know for a fact if the creatures truly do exist. Uh, all we really have to go by is what the eyewitnesses tell us, uh, their, their encounters and claims. 
We can gather a lot of information from that, but it's really not factual information that's going to present uh, proof that the animal exists. But from what we're learning and what the eyewitnesses are telling us, it appears that they're uh, the, the sightings all seem to have the same uh, identifying markers to them. In other words, uh, the appearance is very similar. The behavior is very similar in most cases. Um, we've, we're finding a lot of uh, similar traits to the animal, which would tend to leave me to believe, believe that we're dealing with one particular species, but possibly uh, we may have some offshoots of this one species, maybe almost like a a species that kind of um, has uh, adapted to its environment or right, to the right. terrain or to its food source that's available, kind of like uh, like a human being mm-hmm. um, would live in, in, in the south. Uh, like in Florida, they're adapted to their weather, and uh, they may have a little darker-toned skin from the sun, or they may uh, have different behaviors because of the environment they live in. That's what I think we're looking at is one species perhaps uh, different adaptations of that species based on um, geographic locations. Mm. So, so effectively, the, the Bigfoots in Florida are probably driving around in golf, golf buggies um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and collecting their pensions. Um, <laughs> probably. It's a Bigfoot retirement home. <laughs> but joking aside, I mean, as I said earlier, um, I discovered uh, that we have a British Bigfoot and a British Bigfoot Research Center and indeed uh, sightings and photographs uh, showing um, th- these apparent creatures over here where, where they're referred to uh, often as, as wild man. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think it's... Po- I mean, Great Britain is very much smaller than, than the USA. And well, you have to Scotland. Me that's, yeah, yeah, but it is, you know, it, it is a very much smaller uh, landmass. And I, I'm just fairly incredulous that, that something that large could hide away in Great Britain. What are your feelings, I am, Eric? I mean, could we have them over here? I think it's possible. I don't necessarily think that they call um, Great Britain their home. They may be moving through the country, um, and that's why they're seen sporadically like they are. Um, there's not a high number of sighting cases that I'm aware of, and I know there is a history, as you mentioned, the wild man, that goes back hundreds of years, um, mm-hmm. and there's documented cases, but it's not in the range of the United States or Canada or uh, Nepal, for example, uh, in the Himalayas. The, the case number isn't, or the case load, I should say, isn't as great um, in Great Britain as it is here in the United States or other countries. Uh, I do think there's habitat. And I do think there's a, an ample food source, of course, water, the things that it needs to, to survive. But I don't feel that there's a breeding population or a large enough population of these animals to, to really sustain a home. Uh, that's that's quite reassuring because I live in the countryside, and the thought of uh, <laughs> you know, we we have uh, we have a fairly resident population, judging by the number of reports in our local uh, papers of black cat, big cats, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I can deal with big cats um, and late monsters. Yeah, but, I'm comfortable but, with, but the idea of, yeah. of Bigfoot walking around the back backyard at night and going through the bins. Yeah, uh, but that's that's the thing. <laughs> thing uh steve is that you know they show an intelligence where you know that's one of the theories is why we can't 
find them is that they don't want to be seen. They're aware of of us. And uh, am I wrong in this, Eric? Or if I am, please correct me. You know, I, I bow to you. Uh, but that's, no, you're, you're right on the money. Okay, you're, so, you're right on the money. They, they seem to be uh, pretty intelligent. And um, from what we've learned, again, going back to the eyewitness testimony, what, what it's told us is that they're docile animals, they're shy and timid, but they're also very curious of us, that they'll, they'll spy on us from the, the forest line, or they'll be seen peeking in a kitchen window late at night in the country, or just outside the campfire light. They watch us, but then the minute that they realize we've seen them or we're on to them, they quickly run off in the other direction. They flee. And I think that's a knowledge that they've gained from past experiences with us. Um, they probably know that humans are the worst, most dangerous predator on the planet um, simply because we're a very violent and aggressive um, race. And, and I think they realize that, and uh, that's why they tend to avoid us. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes sense. You know, I, I have to find, I mean, you do go searching for them, correct? In fact, I think you have some some event coming up as well, right? Yeah, we do. Um, well, I've been looking for um, coming up on 20 years now, and I investigate the cases. I actually go out proactively when I don't have a case to investigate. I'll go out in, in areas of historic activity or places that I, I'm assuming are hotbeds based on sightings that we've gathered. And I'll spend a lot of time out in those forests looking for a sign and, and uh, hoping to have an encounter myself for a, a sighting or an experience. So I am proactive in going out, yes. And, and do you have a, a Bigfoot weekend or something coming up? I, I, I did want to make sure we mentioned that. Yeah, um, actually, it's, it's not this coming weekend, but it's next weekend, May 5th, 6th, um, excuse me, 6th, 7th, and 8th. Um, it's called the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Camping Adventure. And uh, what it is, it's a three-day, two-night uh, weekend where we invite the general public um, and those who are interested in the subject, the skeptics, um, those who are kind of on the fence that have always had maybe an interest in finding out if there's anything to the Bigfoot phenomenon. We invite them to come out and, and camp with us. We invite them to come out and uh, go on hikes with us in the forest, uh, sit out in the woods at night. And, and observe what we do as researchers so they have a better understanding of what we do. Because there's a lot of misconceptions and a lot of misunderstandings about the research that we do. People just think we run around with guns and shoot every little noise in the woods. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we, we try to give them the, the opportunity to come out with us and uh, experience what we're doing. And uh, I, I, don't, I never guarantee an, an encounter, an experience, or anything like that, but it gets them out in the forest at night. It gets them out on the trails during the day to look. And we show them... Um, possible sign we show them what we're finding out there and um so they have a better understanding and we're also having some researchers and investigators who are going to be giving lectures and workshops on different subject matter uh, when it comes to the bigfoot phenomenon Um, whether it's safety in the woods or whether it's um what equipment to use or tracking skills learning animal signs and that kind of thing we have park rangers coming in wildlife biologists uh we have uh professional naturalists coming in that are going to speak on the subject and uh, could try to educate the, the general public. And, and if somebody wanted, was interested in this, where could they get more information on, on how to go or uh, so forth? Well, we're on Facebook and we're on the uh, web, on the Internet, and they can go to PA Bigfoot Camping Adventure 
www.weebly.com. Again, that's P-A Bigfoot Camping Adventure.weebly.com. And if they just type that in on the, uh, the Facebook search engine, just PA Bigfoot Camping Adventure, we'll take mm-hmm. them right to our event page and they can find out all about it. Oh, excellent, excellent. You know, it's interesting because I've had some uh, uh, expeditions myself, not for Bigfoot, but looking uh, for some paranormal activity at, at, a, at a part of the, as part of the Bridgewater Triangle. And uh, oh, sure. they have, yeah, they have a, a creature called the Pukwudgie, uh, which mm-hmm. is oh, my favorite like creature. Yeah, I know you is. I love the name of that. <laughs> but you know what? I, I enjoyed and, and of course, in Gettysburg, we, we, we did a nighttime expedition as well. But I enjoyed those expeditions. And I, I wonder, when you go on one, how, do, how does it vary from ours? Do, do you carry specific equipment? For instance, do you carry, you know, night vision cameras uh, or do you use, uh, you know, some type of listening device? I mean, what, what type of equipment do you carry on an expedition like that? Yeah, we, we do carry those tools, um, and it's become a lot more affordable for researchers to be able to um, get gain access to some of the, the better technology that's out there. But we we do carry the uh, either the monoculars of the binocular night vision gear to see at night. Um, we carry uh, digital audio recorders. Uh, we carry uh, the GoPro cameras or um, high def video cameras. 35 millimeter and digital cameras with us to take pictures and document tape measure, of course, in case we find footprints, um, thermal flares. Um, that's a big tool that we're using now in the forest because you can detect the, the heat signatures to see if there's a truly an animal present or there's just your imagination. It'll help you right. determine what's out there in the dark. So we carry a lot of the same tools that, uh, even paranormal researchers carry. There are Bigfoot researchers that carry those as well, like EMF meters, K2 meters. Um, God meters, they're, they're starting to carry that because there are researchers who feel that Bigfoot is a paranormal being. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, unfortunately, we're coming up to the break. Would you mind coming back after the break for a little bit? Sure, I'd be happy to. Okay, so we're going to take a break and then uh, come back because I have a couple more questions I wanted to ask you. And it's a fascinating subject, and I don't get to talk to too many Bigfoot people or cryptozoologists. So anyways, you're listening to Ghost Chronicles uh, Next Generation, despite Steve Parson being here. It is not the international one. Uh, and we'll be right back. Oh, of course, we're broadcasting live on Tojanet, Pararex, Planet Paranormal, Astronet Radio, and wherever else. We'll be right back in the following messages. Hello, hello, can you hear me? My name is Harry Price. I am speaking to you via the medium of the Ghost Box. Many of you will know I carried out the first live radio broadcast from Haunted House way back in 1936 for the BBC. Now, thanks to the wonders of modern technology, I am still able to keep abreast of 21st century ghost hunting by listening to Ghost Chronicles International on Togginet, Parax Radio, The Ghost Channel, and even on something called a podcast. Two splendid chaps host it. One is an American who calls himself New England's own Van Helsing, although I have discovered his real name is Ron Kolek. The other is Stephen Parsons, and he's a paranormal scientist. Well, mustache, I'm required elsewhere on something called a K2. But don't forget, I'll be listening in every Tuesday from 8 o'clock in Great Britain and 3 o'clock on the American Eastern Seaboard. I trust you will join me there. Thank you. 
feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. is back into part two of Ghost Chronicles, the international next generation weird show paranormal stuff Um, because because it is a bit weird because I'm not the blonde bombshell but he is the Van Helsing Mm -hmm. and our our guest tonight, if that hasn't confused you enough, is Eric Altman who is a researcher of things that are Weird in the woods. Big and weird in the woods. But not unlike ghosts, because uh, much to my astonishment, I discovered that uh, Bigfoot researchers and investigators are using some of the very same tools, um, specifically the K2 and the EMF, that some of the ghost investigators are using. Oh, I know that would pique your interest. Well, it does pique my interest, because I, I... I failed to see the logic of that. The thermal imaging, I, I totally get, and the, the vision and the audio and the measuring stuff, but, um, yeah, that's a bit... We, at least I don't have the ghost box or the, uh, you know, <laughs> the act. You should give them a chance. They'll start talking to Bigfoot soon. Um, okay. <laughs> but, uh, Eric, we, we've had some sh- uh, TV shows, um, mainstream uh, BBC shows, in the last year on Bigfoot here in the UK, uh, which looked at the... Um, at the cases, and also interviewed some of some of the people who had claimed to have sightings. Um, now, there were certainly some who who claimed to have, have taken pot shots and indeed killed uh, these creatures. Ah, I mean, I right. yeah, that's feel, true. Yeah, how do you feel about people who? I mean, they are going out, you know, literally hunting for them. Well, I'm not an advocate of killing one of these creatures. Uh, we don't know how many of the species are out there. Uh, it's hard to gauge based on sightings. It could be in the low thousands for all we know. We don't really have a an understanding of the actual breeding population. But I'm not I'm not an advocate of these going somebody going out there and just shooting at one of these creatures. I think there's other ways that we can collect physical data on these creatures. But there are people that do it. Um, I can't stop them. But um, I kind of feel bad for the person that does take a pot shot and ticks one of these Bigfoot creatures off. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> they may end up losing a limb or a leg or something like that. Um, but it does happen. There are people out there that are actively trying to, to kill and, and take out a Bigfoot. Sorry, Ron. I was just going to say, in terms of conventional zoology, though, when they're determining, you know, when they're discovering new species, uh, one of the techniques, in fact, the most common technique that they that they do is to capture or kill one of the creatures in order to be able to classify it. That's correct. Yes, and so, that's really know, the only way science is going to um, positively 
recognize and identify the species for what they are. They need a live or a dead specimen. That's absolutely mm. correct. Right. You know, when you mentioned about, uh, you know, pissing off uh, Bigfoot, I, 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 that brings me those uh, Slim Jim commercials, you know, with a, <laughs> yeah, coming up. So, I, I ha- but, but more importantly, it brought up another question. Have there ever been reported attacks by Bigfoot that, uh, that have been documented at all? Oh, sure. In, in, in the Bigfoot history and the lore, um, there have been several documented reports where Bigfoot has actually attacked a human or or uh, several humans. Um, the famous Ape Canyon encounter in uh, Ape Canyon um, in uh, Washington, British Columbia, not wa- British Columbia, but Washington State back in uh, 1924. Fred Beck and a group of uh, prospectors were held up in a cabin while uh, a group of supposed as he called them, mountain devils, attacked the cabin, trying to break into the cabin. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, one of our former presidents, wrote about uh, a trapper named Bauman from the 1850s, who supposedly Bauman and Bauman's trapping partner were attacked by one of these wild men of the forest, and the, the supposed wild man actually killed his trapping partner and broke his neck and left large fang, fang marks in the, uh, the other guy's neck. Um, there have been reports all, like that all through history. They're not very common. And they don't happen all the time. It's usually when somebody does something to these animals to either uh, provoke them or cause them to become aggressive and, and defensive. Like any animal, I would think, you know, if you shoot at a bear, you're going to make it mad, and it's going to come after you. Um, you encroach on their, their young, their food source, their habitat, and you do something they don't like, of course they're going to become defensive. So there are these uh, tales out there. They're not common. They don't happen with every Bigfoot encounter. But they are—they do happen from time to time. You know, are there like classifications of Bigfoot? I mean, all I can see is you know, like they have the the charts for telling uh, what the planes are flying over. Do they have like you know silhouettes of Bigfoot that, it, that you can tell which one is this? This is a mountain Bigfoot. This is whatever. Uh, is there anything like that, or uh, do you have uh, do you have track marks in the same way? What you know, various track marks that are identifiable or something? Um, not, not necessarily. Um, I guess it depends on, as I mentioned earlier, the geographic location and how they've adapted to it. Mm-hmm. Some are described as thin, um, very wiry, um, where others, like in the Pacific Northwest, they're described as very robust, muscular, mm-hmm. uh, massive, uh, barrel-like chest with a wide, or, uh, with a very narrow waist. Um, here in the East Coast, where I'm at, um, they're anywhere from uh, medium build to a thin, wiry build usually standing between six and a half to eight and a half, nine foot tall. Uh, I, I guess it depends on the area um, in question where the you're, you're asking about. Like in the, the Florida Everglades and Florida itself, the skunk ape's only about five and a half to six and a half, yeah. seven foot tall. They're smaller, stockier, built creatures. So I think it really relates to the, uh, the geographic area, the terrain that they're living in and the habitat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, is there anything about odor? Uh, is there a, a different odor about them? Because I, I think I remember writing or reading that somewhere that they have. You could tell this, if there's, there's a different odor in the air or whatever. Well, not, they have. not in all cases. Um, there yeah. have been um, associated smells with these creatures, and they range from um, wet dog to um, sulfurish smells. Uh, fecal matter, um, rotting flesh, garbage, um, real strong musky smells. 
Um, some of those have been associated with the creature, but not all sighting reports or encounters have that kind of smell associated with it. And, and my thinking for that is because they are, if they are truly an animal, which I believe they are, um, an animal is going to be in the uh, wild. If it's a hot climate, they may be sweating and they may give off uh, a musky smell um, or a, a sulfuric body odor type of smell. Um, if it just rained and someone has a sighting, you might smell more of a wet type of animal smell. Um, if they just defecated or rolled around in, in feces, they may have a fecal matter smell to them. Oh, what just the... like any animal, you kind of run across that. Uh, That's with that old saying, there's a Bigfoot shit in the woods. <laughs> uh, whatever. I mean, I have Sorry. to admit, admit that, you know, I think that Bigfoot researchers have a better chance of proving what they're looking for than ghost researchers. Uh, and, and that you, you kind of have, you know, we always say, we, Steve and I always say, we have a discussion, what is a ghost? But you kind of know what a Bigfoot is. It, it, it's not a, some transparent animal. animal. It's, it's a real flesh and blood type thing. And eventually you can have, get evidence that such a, uh, a creature exists where we, we're not sure, are we, Steve? We're far from certain. And what's also, uh, I, I would say, more difficult, um, I don't know what Eric's thoughts are on this, is that we're looking for something that is clearly different than its environment. You know, the ghost walks through walls and it, it has many, takes many different forms. But listening to Eric's description and reading uh, a little bit before the show about Bigfoot, um, I'm, I'm, you know, constantly reminded how very similar they are in the sighting reports to bear sightings and i think eric you have that added complexity um in trying to tease the known from the unknown which we don't have necessarily um you know with, with ghost research i mean does that make sense oh sure it does yeah and, and you mentioned about how there's they're pretty similar to what the bear encounters the sightings are they have a lot of attributes that are similar to bear um the color, the size, um, the, the diet especially. Um, bears are omnivores. They'll eat whatever they can eat, as does the Bigfoot. So there's a, there's a kind of a, a hard line to, to try to walk and differentiate. And as a researcher, that's my job is to try to figure out if the witness saw a bear or a, a known animal and they misidentified it versus actually seeing a Bigfoot. And that, it's not as hard as, as paranormal research is because you don't have that, that known um, whereas Bigfoot, you have a uh, description, you have a habitat described, you have uh, attributes described, you have behavior described. So you can look for those telltale signs versus with the paranormal, you can't because you don't know what a ghost is, what a ghost does, where it goes, you know, no, what no. its environment well, we have, is. We have nothing similar. You know, we don't have anything like the ghost, um, you know, where you you just described the bear sighting is, is in many ways remarkably similar to that of the Bigfoot, and that must add, uh, you know, that extra layer of complexity must be, you know, uh, extremely difficult to deal with. It can be at times. It can be, but it, that's what makes it interesting. You know, you have to really yeah. dig deep and find out exactly where that complexity is, and and try to differentiate between the different layers of it to find out if it's truly an animal or it's something else that you're, you're investigating. You refer to it several times as an animal. Do you think there's any, um, I mean, one of the most common 
theories relates to it being a branch of the hominids. Do you think that there's any credibility in that as, a, as opposed to an animal, a separate animal species? Well, at this point, we really don't know. Um, there are, you're right, there are people who theorize and speculate that it is a branch of the hominid species. So it could be a relic hominid or even related to the Homo sapiens species, maybe a Neanderthal or, or something along those lines. And it's very possible um, some of the scientific community relate this animal to um, one of the extinct species of primate known as Gigantopithecus, which was the largest known primate to walk on two legs that went extinct, I believe, 100, maybe 100, 150,000 years ago. And uh, they, they know that was a real animal, and, and descriptions of that animal very closely match what people are describing today as a Bigfoot. Um, so it, it very well might be... Uh, uh, Along the human lines, people do describe seeing some human features when they encounter this. The, the face looks human, or the hands or the feet look more human. The, has more of a human appearance than a, a ape or gorilla or a primate. But I call it an animal because you know human beings are animals. We're all animals. Um, we're just a different species. So I kind of look at it more of a flesh and blood um, right. physical being than I do um, a spiritual being. Mm -hmm. I agree. So anyways, uh, Eric, I, I don't want to hold you up for uh, the, the whole uh, hour here. That's, you've been more than generous coming on and, and uh, sharing your experience with us, which uh, we find fascinating. It's, it wasn't quite what I expected it was going to be. It was very similar to what we do. I'm very Only, cool. Very yeah, cool. very cool. So, Eric, uh, we want to thank you so much for joining us. And uh, any last thing you'd like to say to us? Um, if anybody has any questions, um, they want to learn more about it, I'm very easy to reach. I'm on Facebook. Um, I have my own website, ericaltman.net. Drop me a line if you have questions. I'm, I'm more than happy to answer what I can and share what I know. I'm always willing to, to talk with everybody about it, and, and hopefully somebody can learn something rather than just assume and, you know, find out they're wrong. So I'm always happy to learn what I know or share what I know and, and try to teach others. Right, and also uh, you have that wonderful uh, weekend coming up, which sounds <laughs> sounds fun, actually. I hate to say it, uh, and that's coming up in a couple of weeks. So that if you you uh, good for an invite, Ron. Uh, looking for Bigfoot, I was looking for puck wedges. That was enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, a quick question before you go, and I'm sorry about this, but uh, oh, no problem. You ever use a medium in looking for a Bigfoot? I'm just curious. I mean that. Actually, I've done uh, field research with uh, a couple of psychic mediums, yes, and um, I've, they've told me that they've felt the Bigfoot in the area or they felt the presence of the Bigfoot. I can't honestly say that that was legitimate or not because I didn't see or experience the Bigfoot that night, yep. but uh, I have done research with psychics, yes. Yeah, they tell us the same thing with ghosts, too, so there you go. Uh, <laughs> well, Eric, thank you so much for being on the show, and, uh, you know, drive safely, and, and thank you once again. My pleasure, guys. Have a good night. Yep, good night. Well, that was interesting. Yeah, it was, particularly the last I mean, yeah, talking about mediums, I'll tell you anything for 20 bucks. <laughs> Wait a minute. Well, sorry, uh, 50 bucks, 50 bucks. I was selling them out yeah. cheap. Yeah. Too cheap. Yeah, too cheap. Way too cheap. Yeah, anyways, uh, so that was Eric Altman. And, uh, you know, check out his uh, 
website uh, or his Facebook page and uh, that that weekend he did. Have you ever done outside uh, research like that and go tromping through woods and stuff? Uh, well, funnily enough, yes. Um, one of Parasite's very first cases um, didn't involve a Bigfoot, obviously, um, but involved a large black cat. Um, we were contacted just after Parasites formed by the local press who said that in the in the, the woodland nearby um, there had been sightings of a large black cat and as we were paranormal investigators could we pop along with their reporter and take a look and of course you know <laughs> we we did and we we walked through the woods for for about half hour and uh, then the the devil got in my head and I produced because I'm a cat lover um, and I, I know how cats work and I produced a tin of cat food and a saucer and banged the saucer um, shouting here kitty 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 did it work? no but it oh, works okay. some, it, it used to work with the domestic cat so you know big cat it seemed like a logical well, you have to, you have to, you actually have to, you actually have to get a virgin and uh, no, 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 no. I'm sure, fine. I'm fine sure many virgin. cat owners will know to uh, no, shake. No, I, I, I always bring a virgin with me in, uh, when I go. Oh, right. Yeah, it works fine, I can tell you. 100% well, success rate. Fair enough. But, I mean, in terms of, you know, if we move on to uh, cryptids in general, you know uh, that. Yeah, I, it's exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, I have quite so, a passion for the Loch Ness Monster. Right. Um, and I have spent many uh, a long hour stood on the shores of Loch Ness armed with a camera and a pair of binoculars talking to the, the, the residents who, who live along the loch and uh, well, well that brings us up the that, that brings us up the, that, that video that you showed us from uh, the Thames or Thames or whatever the frig it is Thames, Thames, yeah, whatever Old Father Thames yeah, or whatever so wh- why don't you explain that and uh, you know, tell me, give me your thoughts on it because uh, for, you know, some people know what we're talking it's, about, first of all. Um, I, we did put the links up a couple of weeks ago. I don't have yeah. them to hand now. But, um, yeah, here in the UK, there was uh, about uh, three weeks ago, uh, there was a group of tourists who were... There's a cable car that runs across the Thames, which runs right through the centre of the city of London. And they were they were uh, on the cable car ride over the river, and uh, they captured about five seconds of video um, on the video as they panned around of what was um, pretty con- substantially looked like a very large animal in the river. Uh, it, it sort of surfaced and dove away, uh, much like you would expect a whale to do. Um, it was it was shown in the in the in the press. Um, other tourists who were in the cable car were obviously reacting to this sighting. Um, then a second piece of video footage emerged uh, a day or so later, taken by another tourist uh, around the same time and in the, uh, the same stretch of river. Now, the, the, the consensus is uh, it, that you... The, what, uh, there was the, something there. That there was definitely something there, um, and that what they were most likely videoing is something like a minky whale, which is about forty foot long. And there have been a number of those recorded. Um, but I thought it had like a, 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 a neck on it. It looked like a neck on the video I saw. Like a well, well, it, it it also looked like a whale that was breaching and then sort of rolling back under the water. And the experts in in these matters, um, you yeah, know, they yeah. also viewed the video. Yeah, and the, the government people. 
you know, yeah, the, squash yeah. and all that. Yeah, NASA and the government people. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. they, they, they took a look at it and they decided that in view of the fact that there have been a, quite a number um, of well-substantiated, well-documented and internationally reported um, sightings uh, and instances of minke whales uh, and other large whales in the Thames itself, right up you know, in the city of London, uh, which is about 15 miles from the open sea, that this was probably just another event along those lines. Probably. Well, nobody nobody caught it. They can't government be cover, government cover. I mean, with with the with the the, the sighting of about I think it was about five years ago. One of the one of the minke. They want whales. to pull the troops back and, and protect yeah. the thing. It's actually a minke whale that that got himself trapped in the in the Thames Basin in the city centre, more or less in the city uh, of London, and it's for several days a flotilla of small boats and uh, agents, secret agents um, uh, they they tried to, in fact they did lead it eventually some way down the river but I think it eventually died um, oh, that's a shame. which is a big shame so yeah. they can certainly come that far up, up river. Um, yeah but we not, don't know for sure that's a yeah, yeah, summary but that's you know all well, government cover up anyways we know that well so. I mean, anyway. yeah, it, it could easily have just you know yeah. been dropped there from from some sort of passing spaceship craft. Yeah, spaceship. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, that's you know that's an interesting thought. And in fact, I remember when I was a kid when I saw that uh, you know creature that destroyed dinosaur that came out of the river and destroyed London. It was it was horrid. I mean, yeah, they were able to kill it with uh, radioactive shells. That so that that's good to know that we, we still have we still keep a stock of those apparently. Oh, so just in case, in all, right? In all of our major cities that have rivers through the middle of them, we do have a uh, a special building alongside the river uh, that's that's not marked in any way. Um, of course not. A, apart from a small sign saying nuclear shell store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, break, you know, in, break in case the monster. Yeah, for just just such an eventuality. But yeah. but in all seriousness, you know, I've spent time at Loch Ness. And I know, I know that. I it, have actually Loch Ness water. Yeah, I, and do you know what? One of the f- uh, I went up there the very first time. I'd read all the books. I was intrigued um, in the Loch Ness monster from childhood. Um, you know, we we had it on television quite a lot. There was some very there were some big scientific expeditions to Loch Ness in the 1960s that were very well reported in the British mainstream media. And so, you know, as a child, I grew up with stories of Loch Ness monster hunters. Uh, and these were these were proper scientific people. You know, these weren't um, you know mad uh, wacky scientists. Mm-hmm. So when I when I arrived up there, um, the first thing that struck me was the sheer size of the lock and the the inaccessibility of viewpoints. And you, you could probably put a, a nuclear submarine into Loch Ness, and not very many people would notice. But what was what was most um, interesting for me was speaking to people who live around the lock and who work on the shores of the lock every single day they they you know they're farmers they 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 actually uh, there are people who work on the lock as boatmen there are people who work in in shops and cafeterias in the te- in the small towns that surround the lock and yet the, these people many of whom have had their own personal sightings they they weren't fooled for a minute by by the daft theories of elephants uh, and 
moose and elk and deer thing swimming across the lock or aliens or all of the crackpot ideas that people that people yeah. have put forward these people intrinsically knew that they had seen something that was clearly unusual very large and alive on the surface of the lock um now, whilst, whilst we were there, we saw many of the explanations, the boat ripples that, that arrive, you know, half hour after the boat has passed you, uh, seismic waves caused by, um, you know, seismic activity, thermal waves, weird wind-blown effects. And do you know what? Not once were we fooled into thinking that, that any of those were the Loch Ness Monster. And I don't... I don't understand how that can be offered as an explanation because they are, unless you are incredibly gullible, perhaps you should be doing ghost hunting, but um, (laughs) if it is to any sensible person uh, immediately apparent that, that they were natural or normal uh, phenomena. And yet there were a lot of people who see those on a daily basis said that they had experienced something radically and dramatically different that was clearly very large and clearly very alive. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's interesting, too, because, uh, of course, you saw the the, uh, the, the uh, footage I posted on my page a few days back on uh, what they found in the lock. The, uh, they found the monster. Oh yeah, that from the, the from the, the motion picture. Um, yeah, that was pretty cool, huh? Yeah, they actually did find it f- finally. Um, yeah. Because again, there is there is this constant interest in Loch Ness, and there's a constant. There's always, I mean, there is a guy uh, Steve Feltham who lives and has lived on the shores of the Loch for uh, over the last more than the last twenty years. He went up uh, like I did, but he stayed. He was immediately captivated. He he sold his house. He moved up to the side of the Loch. He bought a. a, a, a large camper van he converted it and he lives there um, oh wow and and that's his life and oh, we should get him on the show uh yeah there is um there is a constant um search for the loch ness monster right as uh, indeed there's a constant search for ghosts yeah. I, I still think they have a better chance of cryptozoologists than the perox well you look at how many new species of animals yeah. they discovered exactly every month, every and then you know, I mean, you know, there's so many of them that they like, for instance, the Tasmanian tiger. I mean, they actually have a, a an island set up for a refuge, even though they've never got one. <laughs> uh, so there, well, they there's even find so large much, animals. No, so many reports, you know, that yeah. that that they are existing. Of course, that was the, the uh, pizza from the bell. So we, we don't have too much time. Yeah. But it, it's intriguing. I, I find cryptoids uh, uh, very interesting. Well, I mean, up until relatively recently, um, the idea of large black, large cats in the UK as a native... Oh, yeah, we want to get to that. We never did either. ...was, oh, was completely ridiculed. But, do you know, nowadays it's, it's still ridiculed by many, but it is becoming much more accepted by mainstream zoology. Right. And what was uh, the one we were talking about before? Uh, the, the more something's Exmoor? The Beast uh, of, uh, the beast of uh, Bodmin Moor. Yeah, Beast, Bodmin beast Moor, of right. Dartmoor. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, where the know, army hundreds, were called hundreds, out. Yeah, the army was called out. Hundreds of sheep were killed. Uh, there were farmers. There were, you know, they they right. they set out posses and stuff to try to get these things. Yeah. And there, there's been lo- awful a lot of footage of it as well, which is interesting. Uh, it, it certainly is, and we, even out here in West Wales, uh, only last year we had our own spate of sightings that were one of which was actually conform, uh, witnessed by a, a local authority animal welfare officer. 
Oh, wow. So anyways, there's a tune, so we got to go. But one thing I, wanna, I do want to say in ending this talk is, is uh, London at one time was terrorized by a cat. And as it turned out to be, it was a cat, a domestic cat, a very fat domestic cat. But It can be very scary if they're a rest. domestic cat. Anyway. So thank you, Steve, for joining me and staying Pleasure. up to uh, two in the morning, whatever ridiculous time it is. And uh, you just yeah, it's have Friday. A- it's Friday now. Yeah, coming from the future. Good night. God bless everyone. Tune in next week. God bless. From ghoulies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us good Lord.